out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the singer, actress, songwriter. It is the one and only Honey Bame, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry. She began in 1978, aged 14, in a punk rock band called Fatal Microbes. And then went on to, I think she had a 12-inch single um, split with the anarcho-punk band Poison Girls and also released a record on the Crass record label as well as having a top 10 hit with Violence Grows, You Can Be You and um, much, much more. Anyway, look, this is the interview which you're going to find out all that information and much more. So after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years and also her first kind of musical awakening that happened as a young child. Anyway, honey, it's over to you. Well, I had a few. Yes. Um, my first one, it, it, there was a, when I first got put into care, when I was 11, um... A social worker took me to this this house, and I I didn't know what it was. But it was a children's home, but there mm. wasn't any children there. And I said, "Where are all the children?" And they said, "Oh, at school." And I was like, "Okay." And I got told to go and wait in this room. So I'm in this room, which is kind of like it seemed like a recreational room, and there was a record player. And there were some albums, and I'd never heard, I hadn't heard of David Bowie. Um, anyway, I picked, I picked up this album, mm-hmm. and I put it on. It was Hunky Dory, I think. And the song that played was Changes. Wow, that's and amazing. It, it was a, it was a bizarre. It, it like it really spoke to me. It's like, all of a sudden. Something, it was like my spirit moved inside me in this weird kind of way. It was like all of a sudden I knew my path. I knew what I needed to do. I knew that I was up against a big fight at this point in my life. And I knew that I was going to keep running and running and running. Um, And that... I was gonna make. I was gonna make a difference somehow. Yes. I knew I was gonna make a difference. It was. It was really like. I don't know. It's just something manifested in that moment, yes. and in me, and and changed my whole view of everything. All in just a. In just a moment, like my view of the world and life changed completely. Yes. And, um, and it felt, but it felt good. That's a relief. It felt good. I was empowered. I was really empowered by it. Yes. Um, so that was my first big turning point. Cause that was the, the song. My next, I was going to say that was the B, that was the B side of uh, Space Oddity that had the kind of opening line of um, I still don't know what I'm looking for and my time was running wild a million dead end oh, streets. Was that on, 
Is that based on the table there? That was the that was the opening lines to changes. So um, yes, it, yeah. the profound lyrics, yeah. profound. Oh, okay. Yes, I, thought, I was thinking it was on Hunky Dory, but oh yeah. no, yeah, it probably it, it is on Hunky Dory, but that was also the the sing that was on the B side of the single. My time is running wild. In the summing street, a million dead end. Every yes. time I thought I had it made, it seemed the taste was not so sweet. So I turned myself to face me, and I never caught a glimpse. Yeah, yeah, just yes. it really spoke to me that song. It was just so bizarre. This was the very first place I got taken to, and I was in care, yeah. and I I didn't stay there. Um, <laughs> I like knew that I, I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna stay there, and I kicked up a big fuss. And I said, "I'm not staying here. I don't want to. I don't want to meet the other kids, and I'm not staying here. And if you leave me here, I'm just gonna run away." So yes, I mean, what what was it like <laughs> up to the age of eleven? Then did where? Where 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 did you live at that stage? Was that London at that point, or was it? Um, no, I I lived in London until I was ten. Yes. And then um, when my mum left, well, I didn't know he wasn't my real dad until I was eleven. Right. But I always called him dad, but he was my sister's dad, uh, my younger sister's. Oh, I got and, you. Um, but, uh, yeah, when my mum left him, it was, it was all very sudden. I was 10, and then I was told, um, oh, we're, we're going to move. We're going to move in um, with, uh, you're going to have a new dad or something, and we're going to move in with this guy, John, who I'd never met before we moved in with him mm. and I was like I don't I don't want to like, yes. I don't want a new dad I don't want to like you know move in with a stranger I've never even met and oh god when I met him like he was so he couldn't have been more different from what I was used to um he ended up being like a real like criminal but like he was kind of like a bit of a white collar criminal right you know what i mean he he wore a suit and he spoke very posh and he had lots of money because what he was doing was going he would go to all these different banks and Somehow he could just, he had this kind of like, oh, this big personality and he was so well-spoken and he looked smart and everything and he was just believable. He was just a great actor, you know. I mean, I didn't know this early on, no. but this is what I discovered as it went on. Um, though I wasn't I wasn't there with him for long at all, but... Um, but uh, yeah, because then I, I kept running away right. um, from home because I knew he didn't want me around, and I'd overheard him like 
make little comments like, oh, why does she have to be here for? Um, one day when I'd made an effort to come home at the time I was told to, and I came home like half an hour early, and he just didn't want me to be there. And he was always like picking on me about, you know, if we're, say, sitting at the dinner table, it was like I was always doing something wrong. Oh, you know. Yes. Where's your table manners? Blah, blah, blah. All this stuff. And, I mean, I was being as I had always been and never been told that I shouldn't be that way. And even my mum at the time, like, she... She was speaking really posh as well, and that wasn't her. So she was playing this role for him, and he was, like, hating on me because, like, I could see through that charade. Mm. I knew he was fake. Yes. But I didn't fully understand what it was, everything was happening. And then she tried to cut me off from seeing the man I thought was my dad um, to the point where she got very angry one day and she said, well, he's not your fucking father anyway. And I said, what do you mean he's not my father? Well, he's not your father. Yeah. And I said, well, I don't care. (laughs) I'm going to see him and I don't care. So I went to his shop, and um, which was in Plasto in East London, and we used to live just on the other side of Wanstead Flats. And uh, and I went in and I said, um, I know you're not my real dad. And he looked at me, and he said, okay. And I said, but I don't care. Like, as far as I'm concerned, you're still my my dad yes and so all that was good so but it was because she didn't want me to be continuing to have a relationship with him even though he'd been in my life since I was three yeah um and he was far from perfect and he was a bit of a sleeve and to be honest there were some weird just things that were unsettling in my childhood, even with him. Oh, God. Um, But I still only knew him as being my dad. And when when I was running away and stuff, like, he he had been a... He was a lot older than he was. He was 20 years older than my mum. So he'd been in World War II. Um... It's from the English Channel. He was one of the first people that to do that. Not the first, but among the first. Um, he had been um, a sergeant major in the army. Yeah. But he um, he was very much into horses and like horse riding. So I was on horseback from the age of five. And after, when my mum wasn't with him anymore, he bought me my own horse. Um, so I used to spend a lot of time, like, out in Epping Forest, like, yes. on my horse, going here, there, and everywhere. 
Um, and and sometimes we would go riding together. He'd like hire a, a horse, but um. So yes. So, so yeah, I kind of like at an early age. I was very much like into horses, but I was also very much into singing and drama. Yeah. And was constantly telling my mom, like, look at me, look at me, listen to me sing this song, and she just didn't want to know. And I really wanted to be on Opportunity Knocks. Yes. So I used to watch Opportunity Knocks, and I'd be like, I want to do that. <laughs> you know, I I knew what I wanted to do my whole, you know, yes, from early in my childhood, but I was prevented from being able to to do things. I was, I had opportunities as a young child, but they were always ripped away from me because I wasn't behaving at school, right. and I wasn't behaving at school because at home it was a nightmare because my mum and my dad were often fighting um and i would lay in bed like and you know if they'd let me i'd probably be i've been singing all night but you know i'd be singing like top of my voice um and i think i, I was doing that sometimes just to drown them out but yes. then as soon as like they noticed my mum would say shut up without singing and go to sleep <laughs> yes. <laughs> and yeah. um so yeah, I was I was very musical. I um there was someone's house I used to go to and I, I learned to play like piano. Um although I'm not a good piano player by any means, but you know, I could play certain things. I could play like the theme to Black Beauty. Nice. Um and like a couple of other things. And then it turned out that the lady who lived next door to us was a piano teacher. And I found that out. And um, one day I'd gone in her house and she she told my mum, you know, I have, an, I have an ear for music and I, I have a natural gift. And, you know, was it okay if... I went there sometimes and, and she would teach me and she didn't, she wasn't going to charge any money. Right. But my mum wouldn't let me. Oh. It's like, no, because you're not behaving at school. So it, it was like every time there was an opportunity, it was just ripped away. So That's heartbreaking. So when, so why did you then have to leave your mum and the white collar slightly sleazy guy was that was that just because home life had got so bad at that stage um i was running away um all the time i was getting drunk most nights i would be drunk in the middle of epping high road causing chaos with the traffic right um so I, I was considered to be at risk, and I don't. I honestly don't know. I never found out because I lost my mum on the first of March, twenty eighteen, and I never did find out um, whether it was her that put me in care or whether 
she was forced to put me in care because I was actually put under a care order by the court. Right. Yes, that's quite and drastic. And the year I was in care, she didn't speak to me because um, I had really, really long hair. Like, it was past my bum. And um, she was, like, really proud of my hair. Yes. And Did... when I'd run away from home, I, I let my friend cut it all off, like, really short. Yes. Because I didn't want to be recognised by the police. <laughs> well, that's and, a wise uh, choice. My mum saw me at the courthouse. Uh, she took one look at me and she just looked away. And then that was the last time. I, and I didn't see her after that. I didn't even get to go in the courtroom. Right. So I, don't, I don't know what happened, but... Um, so, so was it the yeah, case that after... So, so is it the case that after the age of 11, you never saw your mum again for the rest of your life? No, I didn't see her her at all for a, a year. Yeah. Um, and she didn't call me or anything. And eventually I called her. I was very depressed. And I hadn't heard from her for a year. And um, I, I was in a very bad way. Yes. Um, I was really struggling in this um, one of these remand homes that I'd been put in. Um, it was a place called Newport House in Chelmsford, in Essex. Yes. Um, and that <laughs> that place ended up with I literally took over um, everything that was breakable. I broke. I, I, I got to the point where I just, I had just had enough. Yes. I'd had enough of them bossing me around and telling me what to do. And, like, I remember the first, like, Christmas morning when, you know, I didn't have anything to get up for as far as I was concerned because, you know, my mum didn't speak to me on my birthday or send me anything. Yeah. And it was the same and I woke up to, well, I was awake, but I hadn't got out of bed yet. Yeah. And someone came in and said, you got to get up. You know, you got to get up. And I said, I don't want to get up. And then a couple of girls came in with this big bucket of cold water and literally dumped it over me in the bed. Um, so that was my first Christmas <laughs> Oh my goodness! No. Yes, and in the end, I just I went crazy on everybody. Um, I put my fist through a window and ended up really cutting myself badly and nearly losing my little finger. Right. Um, there was not a window left in the place. Everything, the toilet system, everything. I smashed everything. It, to the point where the staff literally left and there was just myself and two other girls still there because the others had run off. Um, and we would keep, we were doing things like we'd keep calling the fire brigade, fire brigade would come and we were still finding things that we could break. 
um, staff to work there. They were they were scared to come in there. So <laughs> we literally just had the place hostage, and there was nobody there caring for us. So we lived on like the food that was there. Yes. And we were left on our own for about three weeks before anybody actually did anything. Then one night, um, this social worker, I didn't know it was a social worker. It was a man and a woman turned up. And um, they told me to get um, dressed quickly. Yeah. And um, and they looked at my stuff and they like put this on. I said I don't wear that. It's a dress. So I was a little tomboy at the time, but they made me put this dress on. And then and it was it was dark and it was quite late and it was about nine o'clock at night maybe. Yes. And um, there was a big big field behind the place and um. And the next thing, like, they were, like, one... They were holding my arms, like, one on each side and walking me across this pitch-black field. I didn't know who they were. I didn't know where they were taking me. They weren't speaking to me. I was asking them questions, like, where are we going? Where are you taking me? And they weren't answering my questions. They were just blanking me completely. Mm-hmm. And then... For a moment, I thought maybe they're taking me over this field to murder me. <laughs> so I didn't know. Yes. And um, but then eventually the field um, ended, and there was a street, and and uh, there was a, a car parked there, which I was put in the car. They were both in the front and. Um, and I'm like, where are you taking me? And they said, you'll see. I said, I don't want to see, I want to know. Yes. And they're like, well, you'll find out when you get there. And so anyway, uh, they drove to Brentwood, but not to that St. Charles place. Um we arrived at this big Victorian stately looking home, like this big mansion house. Mm. It was white. And they took me inside and this man came out and he had a really big smile and he had this big belly and but he was really, there was just something about him. He was special. Yes. And uh, I could tell that like like immediately, um, but I still didn't know really what was going on, and um, and uh, yeah, they told me to wait in this other little room, and they went in and spoke to this guy, and then they told me to go in, and then they left. And he said to me, he said, Donna, he said, you've made history. 
I said, what do you mean I've made history? He said, well, you are the first girl to ever be placed in a boy's home in this country. No. I was like, I was like, cool. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was thinking like, boys stuff, yeah, like, you know, it wasn't into all the pretty stuff, you know? Yes. Like, I just really didn't want to have to meet them wearing this dress. Um, but unfortunately, that's all I had until my stuff was brought to me and I was waiting for my leather jacket and my jeans, my boots to arrive. And and it, it was great there. Um, part of the building had been... There'd been a fire and part of the building was being restored. Right. So the boys that would normally have been housed in there were being housed in, like, prefabs. Um, like, you can walk from the back of the house um, along this path and eventually you'd come to these, like, prefab buildings, which was where the classrooms were, the boys... That's where everything was. Yes. Um, except for um, dinner times, they would go into that building. There was a big dining room in there, and they that's where we would eat. But I was, I was in this huge, massive bedroom with big, high ceilings, Oh, it was amazing. I had a great big double comfortable bed. Um, I had my record player and my my dad had bought me a couple of albums. He had no idea what they were, um, but he thought I might like the artwork. Yes. And one was Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, <laughs> which was, like, brilliant, like... I got straight into that. And the other one was a status quo album, but there was one song I, I liked on it, and it was that Down the Dust Pipe or something. Oh, right, yes. Um, <laughs> well, that's the, but before that, in, in the home before, um, I think the only record I had with me at the time was Elvis' 40 Golden Greats. And somebody had the single Bohemian Rhapsody. Right. And I popped Elvis 40 Golden Grapes for Bohemian Rhapsody, which is my favourite song of all time. Excellent. Which was your favourite song of all time? Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, um, Queen. Yes, my God, that was that was recorded at Rockfield Studios. So then, with with that time that you had in this place, in in the the, the sort of other home, which was for boys, but you were the only girl. You did you then stay there until you were fourteen or fifteen, or did you leave again? No, no, I got moved again. Like I, as I said, I had this room, but because I was a girl, yes, and I was only. Only one in the building, other than the caretaker and the the main person, like or office downstairs. But um, I had to have a social worker in the adjoining room. So there was a there was a door 
into my bedroom and then there was another door from my bedroom into the next bedroom right. which was where the social worker would have to sleep but the social worker saw a ghost and wouldn't come back <laughs> god it's just it's just typical in it what a, what a time to see a ghost yes yeah, so you then, then... Wild time, like. <laughs> but um unfortunately because i loved it there but there was a couple of older boys. Well, actually, it was one older boy. Yes. I remember his first name was Terry. Um, and he had really had a problem with me being there. And he tried to start a petition for me to be kicked out. Right. Because it was supposed to be a boy's home. And he didn't want me there. And he didn't want me there because he was jealous, thinking I'm getting special attention because I had this big bedroom up there with my record player and I basically do what I want. Yes. Yeah, so I guess I was treated a little differently yeah. and a bit spoiled. But, you know, I was, I was still very young myself. Um, but I liked doing all the boys stuff and all the, like, the young boys. Yeah. Because um, some of them were only like, you know, like nine and ten. And I used to, and eight, I think the youngest was there, about eight years old. And when it was like bedtime, I would go in and I would read bedtime stories to them. For them, which nobody ever did. But that was just something I did. That's quite nice. Yes, that's a and nice touch. So they wouldn't sign the petition, and the, and the, this other boy was like trying to bully everyone into it, and they were like, "Well, no, we don't want her to go. Like she reads the stories, and like she's kind to us, and all of that." Which I was. Yeah. Um, but it was just my circumstances that I was fighting against in the places that were treating me badly. And that, but so yeah, in the end, I wasn't allowed to stay there and I got sent back home, which I didn't want to do. Yes. Because I wouldn't work. And they said, you know, oh, it's a trial basis. So I went back home and just straight away, just the atmosphere was bad. Like, I could tell he hated me being there. Um, so I, um, they went on holiday somewhere and left me by myself. Right. He had a silver shadow Rolls Royce. And um, they had just got back and I got the um, keys and gave them to this guy who basically just joyride around in it for a while. Yes. <laughs> and and um, and how did that end? Mad. And then when I came home and I couldn't get in, I just like smashed the glass to let myself in. Yes. Like, that way, um, when I was locked out. I, yeah, I mean, I was just, just fighting against, like, just 
I just felt like just so much injustice everywhere, like towards me, like within my family, within school system. I had an awful school, awful teachers, you know, they just some really evil people. Um, and yeah, and I, I was really like quite a loner as well in many ways. Like I would, I would often spend like just hours sitting up a tree in a park. I used to love climbing trees. Yes. Sometimes I didn't go to school and I'd bunk off and I'd just be sitting in a tree all day. And, yeah. You know, or exploring in, in the park and stuff like that. And, uh, so how did you all, and when, so when you got, I mean, that's, hard to know where to start with things because so much happens. Yes, well, so... so but, you, you leave me, you tell me what you want to hear Yeah, about, so, so that, was, that, was, that was quite, that was quite horrendous, really. But then when you got to 14, like 78, you formed a punk band, didn't you? Fatal Microbes. Was this... So how did this band come together? Um, this was when I was in the, um... Oh. Hello? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, good. I'm here, I just... I, the phone fell. Okay. I lost the side there. Um, yeah, I... At the time, I was in the top, apparently top secure unit. Yes. Of, of this. And Charles Youth Treatment Centre, um, which was really quite funny because what what I didn't tell you yet about my other dad, my my dad. Oh yes, was, your real dad. Like when whenever I would run away, like um, he'd either come and pick me up from somewhere, or I'd bunk the trains and get um, to his area. Um, He'd hide me from the police, he'd give me money, he'd buy me clothes, whatever I needed to stay on the run. And if I got caught, um, I would end up in West Ham Police Station usually. And then he, you know, he would come and he would bring me cigarettes, chocolate, magazines. And one day I escaped from the cell, from from the whole police station. (laughs) He'd come to visit and uh, the officer had stepped away um, for something, and he left the key for the cell in the door. So I took the key, and I hid it, like, up high. Yes. There was, like, a toilet in there, so I hid it, like, kind of behind, but, like, up high in such a way that, like, from any angle you looked at it, you couldn't actually see it. Um, and then he came back, and then he was like, where's the key, the key, and what key? I don't have the key. You must have took the key. No, I, I'm sure I left it in the lock. No, you didn't. So when he went off to do that, and my, my dad was still there, I um I took the opportunity, so I, I ran from the... Um, cells out to the main bit 
Yes. I took the key with me. Um, and they saw me just as I was like halfway out the door to the street. And about three of them were chasing me, but they couldn't outrun me. <laughs> I was really fast. <laughs> I had to be. So I, I, I would run really fast and they, they couldn't catch me. And then it was like a few weeks later, I was arrested in South End. Right. Um, I caught for being on the run there. And that's when, when they got the cell key back because South End took it off me. And then I managed to get out of that police station as well. And I cannot remember how I did it. Wow. Um, That's quite. And neat. it was so when I got put in this high security place, yes. it was literally a prison for children. But I was there not because I was committing crimes. I was there because I was running away all the time and was considered at risk. Yes. And because they couldn't keep me anywhere, um, because the only place that was any good was the boys' home, um, everywhere else was absolutely awful um, and it had been a really bad experience for me. Going back home at the time didn't help. Um, that just made things worse. And then after that, I, I got put in the... I didn't get put in there. I got put in a children's home in Loughton for a little while. Um, I ran away from there. And I was at a friend's house and the police came looking for me and I had to <clears throat> run out the back and somehow fly over this huge, huge fence, mm. bare feet. And it was all thorns and stuff all down the side between the houses. And so I dropped down there and it was the middle of winter and it was freezing cold and it had been snowing and stuff. Yes. But I was, I was there and... Um, <clears throat> After they, the police had gone, I got back inside, called my dad, told him to come and get me because the police had been and they would, you know, they were bound to come back. Um, so he came and got me. And just as like, I got in the car, mm -hmm. the police came back. So I just sort of was laying down on the back seat. And, like, we just drove away. And then when I got put in a high, secure place, um, the guy was so cocky to my dad. Yes. And he was like, oh, you won't need to worry, Mr. Harrison, about um, Donna because nobody's ever escaped from here. And so she won't be going anywhere anytime soon. And... Uh, and he just laughed at the guy. Mm. And the guy said, well, what's funny? And he said, well, you'll see. He said, if you think that she, you can, you'll be able to keep her here, then you're not very clever. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And um, then I got, like, taken in. It locked one door after another. And then there was a, a boy from one of the open houses because there was like three different levels of locked up there and one wasn't locked up. Um, so 
some people. The ones that were waiting to go to prison would stay in a high secure until they was 18 and could be transferred. Yes. But, um, but the others, you know, that like kind of like me, maybe running away a lot and stuff like that, um, would seem to like, you know, end up in one of the more open places. But um, this boy had climbed up on the roof because he'd heard about a new, that there was a new girl. So he, he came on the roof and we were talking that like the window opened like a crack, just enough to swing a cigarette to the next window. Like if you managed to get a cigarette off one of the nice staff. Yes. Um, but there were some terrible people there as well that were very abusive. I would um, imagine, yes. But there were also a few that were good. And uh, the, this guy got on the roof and he said, if you want to get out, escape from here, he said, you need to get put in the secure room, like uh, one of the cells. I said, well, how's that then? And he said, if you, if you can get in the secure room, he said, I can help you escape. So I'm like, okay, well, how am I going to do that then? So, I don't know, just shout, scream, do whatever you need to do to get put in the cell and I'll come back later. So I started bashing my door and making like, and they was threatening me, I'm going to put me in the secure room, I don't fucking care, put me in the secure room, you know. And um, eventually they did. And like, when they put you in the secure room, like, you don't have any clothes, you, you have to, you wear like this hospital gown, no shoes or socks, and, and there's just like this fire, one of those horrible heavy fire blanket things. Right. That had probably never ever been cleaned. Like tell it hadn't like it's nasty. And um so anyway I'm in the cell and then I don't know how he scaled the wall the way he did. <laughs> but somehow this this kid, this boy managed to scale the wall. So it I guess it was like if you lived in a townhouse you have like a third floor, yeah? Yes. So the window is about that height. And um, it climbs up there. And on the outside, it had bolts that went across and kept it from being able to be opened. Um, so there was, there was nothing to open the window with. Um, and these... There were these bars going across it. He managed to bash these things until they were out of the way. And then he's like, pushed the window. I was like pushing this window. He's opening like, damn, like, I like just put all my strength, pushed this window and it opened. As soon as it opened, I saw this red light flashing on and off. Like outside, I'm like, Oh, God, you know, like, they, they catch me. So I'm, like, hanging, um, like, out the window. And I was scared of heights. So it's been a bit iffy with heights. Yes. Um, 
So I'm, I'm hanging from outside the window and he's going, let go. And I'm like, what do you mean let go? Like, you see how high this is? He said, just drop. Like, you've got to jump. Just, just let go. So I let go. <laughs> Landed on my ass. I got up, like, immediately, and we just ran across the field. There had nothing on my feet. There was a lot of snow. Um, eventually, we got to the train station, and I bunked the trains, got all the way back from um, Brentwood to um, Plasto. Right. And... Um, and then my dad just came up the road and like picked us up, and we stayed there. And then the next morning, yes, uh, I'm downstairs in the shop with him, and um, he gets a phone call, and it's from the guy that had like been all cocky with him two right. weeks earlier. Because <laughs> he said he he my dad said to him. She'll be gone within two weeks. Wait and see. Yes. And, um, yeah, I forgot about that. But, yeah, I remember him saying that now. And it was literally two weeks after I'd arrived there that that I escaped from there. And um, and then the phone call came. And, uh, like, I was just, like, listening to the call. And he's like, uh, Mr... Mr. Harrison, you would happen to have seen your daughter, <laughs> have you? He said, no. He said, well, what's happened? You told me that there was no way that it was possible for her to escape from there. Has she run away already? Did she escape? <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Yes. I was really taking the piss out of this guy, you know, and um, it was just so funny. But he was saying, no, I haven't seen her, but if I do, you know, I'll let you know. Amazing. Or so, I won't. Yes, probably not, <laughs> actually. But did you, I mean, how did then you develop your kind of a musical path in the late 70s? Because you're a... Roughly the same age Look, as my... I, I was in, I was in that secure place. Um, I escaped to prove a point, you know. So I made history there too because nobody had ever escaped from there before. Yes. Um, and staff, because they didn't want to hear all the yelling and stuff, had turned off the. Um, any, any system yeah. um, where they could hear and they turned off the alarm. So even though the light was flashing, it was only flashing in the cell block, yes. the main door to that was closed to try and block out noise. Because, yeah, that was another thing I was told to do, to make a lot and continue making noise while I was in there um, to keep them away. Yes. And... Um, so they didn't hear the alarm go off and they didn't see the light flashing or anything, um, which gave me time to get away. Um, and they were just stunned. 
Um, I actually went back of my own accord a couple of weeks later uh, because I I proved a point. I liked to prove a point, you know. I was already writing songs. I was writing poetry when I was really, really young. Yes. Um, and um, there was this one day when uh, there was something on the news and there was this woman who was normally, like, just really horrible and stuck up and she wasn't normally nice to anybody. And um, I made a comment about something that was on the news to do with violence. Right. Like, I think there was some football violence or something. And... Um, you know, what What I was saying was positive, but I was told to shut up because I was too young to have an opinion on such things. So I went, I went away and I wrote Violence Grows. Oh. And then I came back and I handed it to her and she read it. And then all of a sudden she was like, oh, you're so creative. Oh, this is so good. You know, you should keep doing this. Well, I was trying to tell you this, but you wouldn't listen, you know? Yes. And um, so I, I'd written, like, quite a few songs at this point before I ever had a band. Um, so I had plenty of songs ready to go. Um, and one of the members of staff that worked there was friends with Poison Girls. Right. Uh, and he lived in Epping. Um, and, uh, you know, they lived in Epping as well at the time. And um, so I would... I, I was spending a lot of time, like... Because he would let me perform, like, for him. So I was I was always singing and I was like have like a broomstick or whatever and I would sing into that like as if I was on stage and yes that's a classic um, I'd, I'd I'd sing a lot to like the early um, X-ray specs songs um, a lot of different style songs to be honest. Yes. Um, but from the punkier stuff, I was really into to that, um, into X-ray specs and the Sex Pistols and um, I don't know. I just I I had a really broad taste in music. Sure. Um, I got Talking Heads, Psycho Killer um, when it was first released. Um, the Police, Roxanne. Um, the Buzzcocks, <laughs> except for they took it away from got banned from playing it because um, the B side had that um, that song about masturbating. Yes, that, was it all going? Fuck you always, always. Oh yes, he's got the energy of Lemay's. He's a he's a oh, what are the words? Yeah. Um, yes ah, I can't remember it's just gone out of my head it's on the tip of my tongue um, but anyway uh, so I got banned from that and then 
God Saves the Queen. I liked singing along to that as well. But then I wasn't allowed to play that side. No. <laughs> yeah. But and then, then I had yes. with makeup. Then you got so, the band came together relatively sort of smoothly, would you say? I wouldn't say it was that smoothly. Um they'd never done anything like this before, so um there was a big meeting with social services and director of the place where I was being kept locked up in. And because as well, being in the most secure unit, which was basically a prison for children um, that were too young to go to prison. Um, So it was quite a complicated process to get permission initially for me to go with that member of staff who knew them yes and be introduced to them um but he'd put forward that you know i i had a gift i it would be a very positive thing for me um to meet these people who would be you know, good influence and it would be an outlet for this, that and the other and somehow they managed to convince everybody to agree to me going with him initially just to to meet them for like a couple of hours. Yes. And that and Yeah. And then I just went in there. I had a little rehearsal room in the house. And I went in there with um, Dan, Pete Fender. Um, And it was just me and him at first. And I was playing bass at the beginning. I was playing bass and singing. And but then I decided that I wanted to just focus on the singing part. Um, Because I wanted more freedom for performance. Yes. And so we got a bass player. um, And then his... Yeah, was that Scotty? Yes. Yes, Scotty Boy Barker. And Mm. then um, Dan's little sister, Gem, Gemma. Um, She... She played the drums a bit what she could play, <laughs> um, which was very limited in the rehearsal room. She was very young as well. Yes. Um, but I think Scott played the drums um, for the actual recordings. I think she might have been allowed to play on the drums on one of the B-sides. I'm not sure I can't actually remember now. Okay. But... Um, Yes. Then, so, so, so you, so the single you had, "Violence Grows," this came out as a split single with the Poison Girls, didn't it? On Small Wonder Records. Yeah, initially it did, and then I think three weeks later, um, it was decided that I should have this a single like to myself that's not shared right? because it was getting so much 
radio play on the John Peel show and everybody wanted it and uh, so it made sense for them to, to release it as just as fatal microbes at the time and um, which was the, the name I came up with for the band um, no idea why I came up with that but anyway that's not really important but no. um but yeah, so we recorded we recorded it um when I was thirteen but it took about um, eight months maybe before it was released because they were being like a bit weird at the place about because they knew they knew like the attention it was going to bring to them, right? Which like didn't realize how things were going to blow up. I think at first, and I'd been telling everyone in the, the home that I was going to be. I said I'm going to be on top of the pops by the time I'm sixteen. And everybody took the piss out of me and said, oh, I'm never going to be anything but in and out of prison all my life. Um, I'm not going to be a singer. And they'd just laugh at me. And I'd be like, you wait and see. And then when I was, I called the next day because I, I had to have the reaction. Yes. <laughs> and that... They're like, oh, we saw you in there. Yeah, I know you did. I told you <laughs> I would do it. I was 16 Absolutely. and I did amazing <laughs> that was amazing was, I, I, I always had a point to prove it's like I always had something that I needed to fight for yes um, and at that time it was my, my freedom and the music like now I had an outlet like that nobody could take it away from me yeah um, like I might have been prevented from learning better to play the piano when I was young or from being in a play that I was cast in and things like that that I was pulled from at the last minute. Um, but it just, that just drove me even more to, 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 to make something happen with my life. And then... You know, like <clears throat> how synergy works, yeah? Yes. Um, this is something, there was this pattern, constant pattern of synchronicity that was going on in my life. Um, especially, like, once I started the music, it was... It was just bizarre, like, how I would meet people and... Like, before I go to that, one little gig as Fatal Microbes at Epping Hall, um, and a couple of the press people were there, and um, I sang, I think, two of my songs and two X-Ray Spec songs. And um, there wasn't a lot of people there. It wasn't like a proper gig or anything. It was just like a youth club and we just could go there and do it 
kind of thing. Yes. So, um, so that was the only live performance I did with them. But then I had to form a new Fatal Microbes the very last time that I ran away when I knew that they wouldn't be able to take me back because when when I went back uh, after Violence Grows was out on its own single all of the publicity I would run away and it was it was in the Sunday newspapers that I'd Punk star, punk pop star runs away from council home and like just stupid stuff. But you know, I didn't realize it never occurred to me that there might be a process to getting an interview, for example. But I knew that the offices for enemy and that was in um, Carnaby Street, right? So while I was on the run, um, when I was 14, I went there. And I walked in and I said, um, are there any journalists Yeah, And they, she said, well, there are. Who do you want to see? I said, well, who do you have? And they're like, who are you? I said, don't worry about who I because I'd spotted someone that looked like a journalist. I just walked straight into the offices, went and sat on the desk in front of them, and dumped out this bag full of songs and were like, read my songs. And they're like, what? And this was this guy, Max Bell. Yes. Um, enemy. And he starts reading through and and he realises I'm the girl that's got this Violence Grows song out that everybody was raving about. And he said in, I think, somewhere in the beginning of the interview that the reason that he'd given me what he had was because I was naive enough to think that all you need to do is just go in and dump out a bag of songs and and you get an interview. Yes. Um, so... That that got me a, think, a front cover as well. I think it was. And a double page spread inside. Um, so after that, oh my God, everything blew up. Um, I went back to the home on purpose. At this point, I was in, it was still secure, but there was a bit more freedom. Like, I mean, the doors were locked. But you know, and we were still locked in our rooms at night. Yes. But we could get more outside time, like we remember staff or whatever. So when I went there, like, they were getting really stressed out, backs and forwards. The, the office phone was just ringing off the wall, like, continuously for days. And they're like, you know, you know, like, all these calls... Oh, because of you. And I'm like, what do you mean because of me? Well, because all, you know, we've got the national papers, we've got all these music papers, and they want to interview you, you know, we're having to say no, you know? And 
I said, well, why are you having to say no? And they said, look, we might consider the local paper, the Brentwood Gazette. I said, okay. So Brentwood Gazette came there, and I did an interview with them. <laughs> I don't know why they thought that was going to be any better. Excellent. Because once I'd done that, like, Dave, there was no way they would be able to take me back. I mean, it, it, it was like a chess move for me, um, working that, because I knew that I was going to go once I'd done that. I, 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 I needed to get out and get that interview, and then I used that last interview as another stepping stone, because I'd gone back after I'd done that interview, I'd gone back after the first one, um, then I'd done that other one, and at the end of the week I left again, but I knew that they wouldn't want me back. Yes. So I kind of hid out for a while, um, doing interviews with Sounds and my other papers, oh, yeah. They were interviewing me in secret, um, like, places. And I had so much public support at this point. Yes. Um, and, you know, so people were on my side. It, it, it would have caused riots at that point if they tried to take me back again. So after a few months, I established my new band. I was already going around gigging and getting paid um, to play. So I went to social services. Um, the, the head of social services, um, I was invited to a meeting, so I went. She was there. Um, the director from the home that I was in was there which, funny enough, years later, he did this rebirthing experience on me, which is a whole other story. Wow. But um, he, wasn't, he wasn't working there anymore at that point, but he was into all that stuff. Yes. Um, but, uh, yeah, he, um, he was there. And, of course, he has to say, oh, you know, we'd really love for you to come back, you know. Um, and you can come back with me now and you're not in any trouble and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no, I'm not coming back. <laughs> I said, I have on my own life to lead. I have a band. I'm making money. I'm doing gigs all around the country. Yes. I'm, you know, and I'm making a success out of what I'm doing and I don't need anybody to take care of me. I can take care of myself. And um, so he was like, okay, that's then that's fine with me. But I knew it was fine with him from the beginning. Yes. Um, and so the the social worker, the head of social services there, who had been my social worker, I just remembered her name, it was Mrs. 
Mrs. Watmore. And she was really nice, this lady. She was one of the good people. Excellent. Um, and she was okay with that too because she she, she got it. And, um, and she said to me, like, when you're 16 and you're on top of the pops, I want you to call me so I can congratulate you in person. Nice. And I don't know if she actually believed that I would or not. She seemed like she believed in me. And I did do that and she did congratulate me. Nice. So um nice moment. So then your you know, your your big kind of single was that was that Turn Me On, Turn Me Off? Was that the one that sort of um appeared on top of the pops, wasn't it? With your amazing kind of Yeah. But it wasn't a good experience because um, I wasn't allowed to wear what I wanted to wear. Right. I hated what I was wearing, although, you know, I understand from, like, some of my friends from way back that they would do their hair like me and they'd... People were buying (laughs) Red Max... (laughs) And stuff, but that wasn't something I would have worn normally. I, I, you know, I was more into, like, I had this black plastic Mac. Yes. The, a shiny one that was, like, kind of like wearing a mini dress almost. That was more, like, my look. Yes. Um... And I, I I would wear that maybe with, like, fishnet tights and, you know, or lace tights and lace gloves or fishnet and gloves and fishnet tights. Yes. So, Boots or whatever. So that was not good. Because you had that sing that was a single that came out, um, was it 1991 time? Because you also, you had a single on... 80, did I say 90? Yes, 80. Um, I'd had, yeah, I'd had three singles already before that because I had <clears throat> the Violence Grows one. Then after that, I um, I released um, that song Guilty, yes. which I wrote and produced and mixed with the help of the engineer who told me what buttons do what. So I mixed it till I got my dub mix that I liked. It wasn't perfect, but I liked it. And um, so that came out. Um, the first guy I had kind of managing me I was a guy called Kevin Millins, and he was the guy that started the club Heaven. Okay. And I would stay at his place, like, sometimes in Maida Vale. Yeah. Um, when I was young, didn't have any, like, well, I, there were other places I could go. I, I used to stay there sometimes, and sometimes I would stay at John Lydon, and sometimes I would stay at Jimmy Percy's. But what a lot of people mistake, and I don't know why, Jimmy was not my manager ever. Right. I was managed by his manager. 
And his manager was a god-awful man who ripped me off so much money. It's, like, ridiculous. Yeah. Um, what was his name? You know, definitely Tony Gordon, his name was. What was it, Tony Gordon? Yeah, he had Wedge Music um, in Grove, Grosvenor Street um, in Mayfair. Right. Yes, tricky. And uh, he also managed Legs and Co. Um, he managed the Angelic Cup Starts, the Putney Rejects, Sham 69, um, Jimmy Percy's solo career, um, Culture Club, and then singularly Boy George. But the only person that he didn't abuse was Boy George for some reason. Mm. Um, so yes. everybody else he really messed up but like Jimmy was more like a big brother kind of thing nice um, he tried to protect me from a lot of things like bad things um, but it was unfortunate that him and, and John Lydon had this ongoing feud because they would both be arguing over me all the time about where I was staying Yes. And, um, yeah. And and the funny thing is, is that circumstances that I met all these people in were part of this whole synergy. And so was my getting the UB40 tour. Right. Again, that was the most bizarre thing ever, how that came about. And it was, it was like there was just one absolutely bizarre thing after another um, that would would happen, this just ongoing synchronicity. Like, I didn't get it at the time, and I didn't really question it either. Yes. I just thought, wow, you know, that's interesting, and I didn't think about it anymore. But later on, like, when I, I thought back to these things and reflected, it was, like, just incredible, like, how all, everything just fell into place one thing after another, I didn't even need to try. It was like, yes. Did you? Um, the way I met him firstly was one day saying to this other girl, like, I'm bored, let's just go hitchhike somewhere. And she's like, Where? And I said, Well, anywhere, just wherever they're going. Yeah. So we hitched a, a lift. And the guy was going somewhere or other, but he dropped us off in Hersham. And when we got out of the car, we walked down the street a little bit, and then I look across the road, and there's Jimmy Percy and some of the angelic upstarts playing like with a football on this green. And then, so they come over, and the Angelic Upstarts at that point were living above um, the betting shop in Hersham Green. Right. And um, Jimmy told them that I was, because, like, I didn't, like, have anywhere. Like, I was always staying in different places. Yes. So he was, like, um, getting rid of those clothes, and he, he went out and he, 
bought me clothes and he brought them back. And, he, and from that night, he had me staying there, living in, in that place with the Angelic Hutz Park, too, at that time. Really annoying. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, but in the daytime, he would come, he would send the cab to take me over to his friend Jimmy Edwards in um, Wharton on Thames and I would spend the day there and then I'd get taken back like in the night to go to bed um, and Jimmy Edwards was also um, a singer-songwriter right and he was the person that I smoked my first ever joint with when I was 15 <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, and uh, he would come and rescue me because sometimes we'd go out. I, I'd walk around town like drunk and causing chaos. And he'd get like a phone call. Like eventually, like they knew who to contact. <laughs> he'd get a call and he'd come and get me and like take me back, make me sober up. And he'd say, look, don't drink, do this instead. That's how it started. Um, yes. And I liked that vibe, so, and that was safer. More <laughs> quiet. Drinking, so. Did you, I mean, because um, you were quite, this is like the early 80s, you were really prolific, up to sort of dizzy dreamers. Before the 80s. Yeah, all that period. But then... What, what happened? And then the Crass label, that was my third single. On the Crass label? Yeah, that was the third one. Did you go to Dial House and meet um, Penny and Steve and and that that sort of bunch, or did you record that? A couple of them had come to the gig, and then um, Penny came to Dial, not to um, Poison Girls' house, Um to meet me uh, to talk about doing a single. Yes. Uh, and they, they took me over there and then, like, then I would sometimes stay over there as well. And, like, while I was on the run, I stayed there too. Um, yeah. And I remember the police come knocking on the door and Penny telling them, no, she's not here, and I'd be just around the corner in the next room. And um, I'd be like, well, can we come in and have a look? And he'd be like, no, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would imagine. There was nothing they could do about it. I mean, they couldn't, like, insist or anything. Yes. They'd be like, well, if you have a warrant, do you have a, a reason to, to a warrant for a runaway? Um. But no, he he was like one of my best and biggest mentors growing up. Um, and when I was very young, like I learned so much from Penny. Yes. Um, about everything from my writing to life and system and politics and just I learned like just so much from him 
um, and I used to have the best time there, like, when it would be quiet, and there'd be times when it was quiet, and it was just me and Penny, and we'd sit in the kitchen at this little table, and we'd eat this amazing, like, wholemeal sourdough bread that G would make. Oh, yes. Oh, God, the best bread ever. And, um... And some kind of Vegemite or something on this bread and butter. Nice. I really like Vegemite very much, so I'd like the tiniest speck just to give it something. Um, or I'd have it just with butter. And we'd sit and we'd drink tea and we'd talk and, you know, and he was so intellectual as well. And that was really good for me because I was really a very wordy person anyway and so I was kind of naturally leaned towards being more intellectual um naturally I wasn't having to be like crazy because that's that's how life was forcing me to be earlier on um but I was learning from him how to really channel myself in a positive ways and um they really helped me a lot him and g especially yes uh, were amazing and there through some very difficult times i did eventually have a good relationship with my mom it took a while it took until i was i was 18 Um, and we ended up like best friends um, for the rest of the time you know after that it just took a long time to really understand each other and get all our resentments out yes Um, it's a tricky one it's a tricky one so then what happens I mean sort of 80 you know that was the you know crass and then there was that sort of period up to 83 and then you you stop sort of recording at that stage. What what's the sort of situation? I stopped everything. Well, I stopped everything. I'd have, I didn't stop writing songs, but I stopped. I got married when I was nineteen. Right. Um, again, that was a weird situation. Um, the I was married to a guy called Fox, who was the drummer with a band called Dirt. And I, I actually hadn't heard of this band Dirt. No. But I was sharing a squat at the time. Right. Um, but I I got with Dirt's guitarist, Gary. And him and his dad and his cousin had gone to Crassies and heard that I was at this squat and, like, made out like they wanted to visit Gary. I never even spoke to this Fox guy, but he was sitting across the room from me. And in my head, clear as a bell, uh, the voice said, my voice said, wow, you're going to be my husband. I just knew. I don't know how I knew, but I knew. Right. And then the day... Um, his cousin called and said, could they come and, like, 
visit again. Um, sort of Fox wanted to um, visit me. And we never spoke the whole time he was there at all, like, on that first visit when I knew that. We yes. hadn't even spoken to each other. He'd been there five minutes. Um, the next day after he came back, I ended up going back to his dad and lived there with him for six months. Six months later, we got married. But he had been telling his dad for years. He, he used to have a picture of me on his bedroom wall, apparently. Right. And he was telling for years that I'm going to marry her one day. She's going to be my wife. So it was something we both knew mm. <laughs> before ever speaking to each other. And um, But sadly, um, just after our daughter's first birthday and just after his 22nd, he died mm. from epilepsy. So at 22, I was a widow right. with a, a one-year-old. Um, and, uh, so, yeah, so, and then I, I went through some really, like, terrible, like, next three or four years, really, really bad. Yes. Um, in my life. And then things started to get better, and I started to get more back into music, and, um, I put a new band together and in the early 90s I didn't go out under the name of Honey Bang because I was like still honing my art so I had at first it was like a heavy metal band but then it was more of an alternative metal band so it there were sort of punky elements but there was very 90s um, influences as well like Nirvana-ish Alice in Chains kind of Right. There was some of that influence in it. There was lots of different influences in it, which was what made it so good at the time. Um, but it meant that I had to really learn how to use my voice. And I, I always felt one of the things I had lacked was being able to be emotive in my vocal performances and that my vocals were not, performance enough right um and that was something that i really wanted to get right and like so i could do that i wasn't going to come back and say hey honey bane i'm back i did that when i knew what i knew that i could do it and do it really well and when i made my studio album it was it was very much like a kind of exorcism of things that had gone on over, I guess, over a 10-year period of my life. Yes. Uh, that I wrote about in different ways. Um, and so there was one song that came out... Um, well, I didn't know at the time, but the engineer said to me, I do believe I've just witnessed you channeling Shakespeare. 
and that was a song called Undone. Um, which is on my Acceptance of Existence album. And since then, like this year, I've channeled Shakespeare a few more times. Um, and I'm recording a new album in March with Penny. Oh, excellent. This is all good. I always like when people... Yeah, which is going to be released on his his own label. Right. Um, yeah, so I've got that coming up. And I have a, a vinyl release, um, 12 inch vinyl release of Violence Grows, Violence Grew, um, and the other B side from Violence Grows on, going to be on a black and blue vinyl um, lyrical insert, really got a great cover and stuff. Um, as for record store day, right? We submitted it for that and they accepted, so that will be available in March. Um, around the time that I start recording this next album, which will be more like avant-garde style, right? My own, my own, like touches to it because no matter what I do, I, I always have to bring me that um yes so it's all me you know regardless of of the genre but for me it's about the words it's about the messages it's it's about being relatable like for other people and i know that so many people got so much out of my earlier stuff yes so what I write is really important because I know that it influences a lot of people, um, especially younger people. That a, I didn't realise I had such a young audience as well as an older audience because I, I did my first ever poetry recital recently and it was only advertised for three days on Instagram. But all the fans that turned up, I don't think there was anyone over the age of 25. They were all like 18 to 25. Amazing. And it was, it was phenomenal, like the response and everything. Um, and so I only read one poem. It was like nine, a nine minute read. Um, called My Beautiful Demon Inside. And just people just wow I didn't know what to expect to be honest but the the minute I sat down like to read yeah I had to sit down I just come out of hospital and I was still struggling to stand up let alone walk so um and then I was back in hospital again like three days later because of the same problem but I didn't want to let down the people that was putting like the whole event on which I was the only person doing any kind of live performance yes um, but you know I swore that regardless of how much pain I was in I, I would do it so, yeah, yes. and, and I'm glad that I did because I don't think I ever felt I don't know if I, do I always feel that comfortable when I go onto a stage I think I do there's like a calm that comes over me that I don't have anywhere else in life. 
and it just reminded me of that, like how much I miss live performances. Um, but it's so hard to find musicians right. to actually want to like play because they want to make like good music and they, you know, like it's like there's no spirit out there anymore. It's really difficult. Um, you know, like the times I've tried to get a band together and it's like, it's always like somebody drops out at the last minute or, you know, there always is something goes wrong. And I guess it's just not being the right people. That's why. Yes. Or the right time. I'm not sure. But, now that I've done that, I'm really feeling like I want to go back out and perform. Fantastic. As a vocalist. And I didn't work so hard in the 90s to be able to have a voice um, that I knew how to use and to do nothing other than record with. Um, because I, I can do it. Like I mean, I've done a couple of live performances but they've been at like not not like gigs as Honey Bane but through other things right um, that I was doing some like mentoring um within mental health um and this a guy I had a recording studio set up at this place. Um, so people would come in and I'd help them. Like People that had never sung in their lives, never written a song and stuff like that. And I'd talk to them and I'd help them write something or I'd inspire them to write something themselves. Yes. And encourage them to like sing it or speak it or however, whatever comes out you know, until they're happy with it. And then we'd record it and like, and they get a CD. And when you see the look on these people's faces, when they hear what they've done, they're, they're so shocked and they're so happy. And it's just the most beautiful thing in the world to witness. Yes. So, um, through doing that, that enabled me to, you know, just really to, more of a high demo standard rather than a properly produced standard to record a few um, songs and to be able to perform a couple of live events that they put on. Um, but, you know, I'd just be performing with, you know, the guy on keyboards, you know, on piano kind of thing. Piano. Yes. Keyboards, um, and that was that was fine, you know. Like I quite like singing just with a piano nice. as well. Yes, I was gonna just sort of gonna say. I mean, if you, your life has just been incredibly. Um, yes, it's just unbelievable, isn't it, your, your childhood? But then, even through your adult life, it's been tricky. But it seems like you've got quite a lot sorted out and a bit more stable than it has been for quite a while and quite creative does that do you feel like you're in a much better space and place now definitely 
I mean, I've had four children. Oh, right. Um, you had four. And I've, I've lived overseas um, quite, quite a lot. Um, I mostly raised my kids in America um, when they were young, younger. Um, and I lived in Okinawa, Japan for a while as well, which was absolutely beautiful. It's like a tiny little island, 2,000 miles off the Japanese mainland. Yes. And like a plane to Australia. That's how far out it is. Um, that's my favourite place in the whole world. Um, if I was rich, that's where I would live. Yeah. And then I've lived in five different states in the US um, and driven coast to coast probably about three times now. Um but I really like those really long road trips, even though I was doing them well, with, like, really young children. Yeah. Um, still really enjoyed them. Because before that, the furthest I'd ever driven over here was 265 miles. And then the next time I had to do, like, a long drive, it was 3,500 miles. <laughs> yes. So, but it was great, like... At first, I was a bit anxious, and I considered, like, selling my vehicle and flying. And I thought, no, I'm, I'm going to face this. I'm so glad I did, because I absolutely loved it. And everybody had said, oh, it takes, like, three days, like, to drive across Texas, because it's, like, a massive state. And so they said, oh, and it's really boring, because all you see for miles is, like, just deserts and... You know, cactuses and, yes. and things that are getting out more to like New Mexico and on the other side. But to me, I wasn't boring at all. I loved seeing that all that open space, all the and and the, the desert. Like I really liked the desert as well. I mean, I'm an ocean person, but I love New Mexico and. Lived in Arizona for a while. Yes. So, you so, you, so you managed to sort of navigate life surprisingly fluidly. Yeah, I spent a lot of time being a woman on the run too. I <laughs> 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 was a bunch of kids in tow. <laughs> That's really interesting. Yeah, but I, I, like, I do like travelling and I... You know, I, I could go back and live in America if I wanted to. Right. Um, but I, I mean, I have a green card and everything. Um, I never wanted to become a citizen, so it probably would be easier to have been a citizen because yes. I still would have had my British passport too. But there's a lot of things I don't like about America as well. Like, it's it's not like there are places that are amazing. Like, I've lived in some amazing places, um, and I've had some amazing lifestyles over there, and I've had some bad ones too. And I've lived in the hood in Pennsylvania, and it's bad, bad, and <laughs> yeah, corruption everywhere. And 
like just crazy. But um, so yeah, I mean, I've had some quite extremes of of circumstances um, in the places I've lived. Yes, it sounds, it sounds like you managed to sort of somehow navigate having a career and sort of having. A, did you ever have financial stability within that? You know, your your sort of life because it's it's quite hard to keep a gig together, isn't it? You know, like a roof over the head and you know paying the bills. But you also being a musician is not the easiest profession career to sort of have any stability so how did you manage to navigate that little aspect well initially um like my second marriage uh was to a guy who was in the u.s air force right and i i worked as, as a civilian for a while on a u.s air force base over here rf lake and Heath. oh yes um, and, uh, so, I mean, I've never been, like, afraid of new things or different places and stuff like that. I, I always have welcomed, like, massive changes, you know, in, in my life at different times, and I'm, I've been used to that. Yes. Like, I've never... I've never had a really settled life. Um, I've never really been in a normal situation for any length of time where there's real stability. Um, you know, if it's if it's not physical, if it's a physical instability, yes, or. It might not be a physical instability. It could be an emotional instability. You know, there can be many reasons why things are just not not kind of normal and and not. I don't really know how to how to put it, but. Um, it's like I I enjoy the challenges I enjoy facing challenges um, but being that kind of person hasn't made me somebody that is really able to be very settled anywhere for no. very long Um I struggle with that because I never really had it, I guess, in my childhood, the stability and kind of carried over into my adulthood. Um, and, you know, so financially, um, last, last time I was there, I mean, I, I didn't need to work um, when I was first living in the States. Um, or when I was living in Okinawa, but because you know my husband got my ex-husband got paid enough money, so but even so, even though he he did, I actually still went out and got a job just to get away from him. Like, yes, so I wouldn't have to be around him. Um, 
And I also did uh, quite a bit of voluntary work um, over there. Uh, I was trained in trauma intervention and emotional first aid. So I'd get I'd get called out um, at any time of the day or night if somebody had just died. Right. Uh, I would be the person that would go and kind of be a first responder. So I would be, I would liaise with medical examiners and the police and the, and the people left behind kind of thing. And uh, if it was like a large, big, large family and a lot of people around, that sometimes that could get difficult and I have to keep every, everybody balanced somehow. Um, and uh, kind of have to just jump in this black hole and like just, bring them back out, you know, like in one piece. Um, and I I had a lot of grief in my own life, so it's, you know, it was something I could relate to. Um, and I had a lot of compassion for people going through that. And uh, I also, I, I worked for a year in a large public mortuary here. Right. At Farnborough Hospital in Kent. Um, like back in my mid 20s. Yeah, about my mid 20s, I think. Um, early to mid 20s. Yeah, mid 20s, definitely. Right. And um, that was really very interesting I don't really know how to describe that because you know I didn't even know if I could do that kind of stuff you know but before I knew it I was you know I mean I was assisting with the post-mortems and I was often like left by myself because My the a... first powerful I ever used was to open a skull to take out you know somebody's brain mm. um, and there were some days when I was just doing that like so many times and uh, just doing the whole everything like um, and uh, and an embalming as well so yeah that there was a, not a lot I haven't seen you know, as far as that. Um, <laughs> that that's a slight understatement really isn't it I think I've never I've never had an interview with anybody who's been who's worked in you know with dead bodies and opening skulls it's uh, definitely definitely a new one on on that I mean yeah. it, it is the <laughs> most extraordinary life I mean if I mean it's a bit tricky because after I asked that question you know if you could have said something to your like 16 year old 16 year old self starting out is there something that you might have just whispered in their ear even if they might have ignored it I mean I just wondered you know with all the experience you've had if you you know if there was anything you thought yeah I would have just told myself that even if it would have been wasted you know I just wondered what that you know might have been I think I would have only ever had something positive to say. Yes. Like, you know, just keep doing you and just be creative and um, 
and don't waste time around people that are bad for you. Not not don't have a positive role to play in your life. Yes. This um, is... People that, you know, have some understanding of what it is to be you and to have that acceptance where I can just be myself and I haven't got to put on a, a show for anybody. Um, you know, I can just be me because I, I've always tried to be me, but yeah. there's been times in my life where I have that knocked out of me, you know. I've experienced domestic violence in my life as well. Right. Um, and it been very severe when I went through it. Um, so really it's kind of weird, my, my life. Like, I've had so many things just thrown at me. Um, always. It's like there's always something being thrown at me. So I think I'd... I tell me to like, just catch, <laughs> catch, <laughs> because it's going to be like flying at you, you know. Yes. But <laughs> and that is the end of the interview. A massive thank you to Honey Bane for giving me the time for that interview. I hugely appreciate it. This has been the Sadie Six Show, David Eastor. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter. Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, these have all been archived. Aren't you lucky? You can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.